Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Last week, I began a series of messages on the Holy Spirit, and I used that one as an opportunity to just sort of introduce the Holy Spirit. The subject is so vast, it's impossible to cover it in even a lengthy series of sermons. So I began by suggesting that the Holy Spirit is a person, part of the Trinity, one of the members of the Trinity, and that he was involved in creation. He was involved in the ministry and life of Christ. He was involved in inspiring the scripture, and he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then I said that because the subject is so vast, I'm going in this series to restrict uh, just speaking about the relationship of the Holy Spirit to believers. But frankly, even that is a large body of material. The New Testament has a great deal to say about the Holy Spirit in relationship to believers. So it's going to take more than one message to cover that. It'll take half a dozen or better. So I'm going to start that aspect of this subject by just focusing on what I'm going to call the initial work of the Holy Spirit in relationship to believers. Now what I have in mind is this. As I mentioned in the first message, The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. When we talk to people about the Lord, it is the Holy Spirit who does the work of convincing them that they are sinners and they need the righteousness that's provided in Christ. We don't persuade them. The Holy Spirit convinces them which is the very meaning of the word convict. Now, in this message, I'm going to assume that's happened to you. There was this moment when you understood who Jesus was, that he died on the cross to pay for your sin, and you trusted Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life. At that point, the Holy Spirit continues to do the work He has already begun. The first thing he did was work to bring you to Christ. That's part of his ministry. I said that's what he does to the world, to unbelievers. But what happens the minute a person trusts Christ? What does the Holy Spirit do next? And the answer is a large number of things. So what I'm going to do is pick three that happened at conversion, at the beginning of his ministry to us. It would be helpful to us to see what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, let's say, at conversion. I'm calling this his initial work. There's much more to follow. 
which we will get to by and by. So with that in mind, turn to, with me to Titus chapter 3, the little book of Titus chapter 3, small book, three verses, uh, three chapters I should say, one of the last books that Paul wrote, his last book was 2 Timothy, he wrote this one just before that. So look at Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, these verses are just packed. Uh, did you ever pack a suitcase and had lots of room left over? And did you ever pack a suitcase and you had so much in it you couldn't shut the lid? Well, this is one of those passages that's so packed it's uh, hard to shut the lid. Every phrase could be uh, discussed and should be. But um, what I'm going to do is unpack it particularly pertaining to the work of the Holy Spirit in his initial work. And for that, we need to focus on one word in verse 5. It says in verse 5 that he saved us through the washing of regeneration. Now, I want to land on the word regeneration for a second. By the way, uh, the Bible does not use technical language. Uh, theologians come along and give various things in the Bible, technical language, but there's very few words in the Bible that are of a technical nature. This isn't one of them. Matter of fact, I don't know of any technical language in the Bible. There are some bigger words. Uh, this is one of those bigger words. The Bible speaks in very plain English. Matter of fact, often in one syllables with profound truth. Like Jesus said, I in you and you in me, all one syllables, one of the most profound truths in all of the Bible. Well, this is one of those cases where he uses a word we don't normally use. It's not a technical word, but it is a 50-cent word. So let's exchange it for a couple of nickel words, all right? The word simply means new life. As a matter of fact, in Greek, it's a compound word made up of those two words, new life. So the idea is that at conversion, the Holy Spirit gives us a new life. That's the definition of regeneration. The Bible teaches that we were born dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that. Uh, we were born with physical life, but we were born dead of spiritual life. That is, we were separated from God. Death is separation. So we had no spiritual life. When we trust Christ, we are given eternal life. Now, I think we hear that expression, eternal life, and we think of duration. It's going to last forever, and that's true. But eternal life is more than that. As a matter of fact, 
eternal life is God's kind of life. Now let that sink in for a minute. Eternal life is God's kind of life. If you have trusted Christ, divine life is in you. I'll get to more of that in a minute, but it's that kind of life. 2 Peter 1.4 goes so far as to say, we are partakers of divine nature. We're partakers of divine life. The way I've illustrated this in the past is to say there are different kinds of life. There's plant life, there's animal life, there's human life, there's angelic life, and there's divine life. So that when we were born, we were born without divine life. We had human life. When we trust Christ, we are given a new life. And that means divine life. So, the initial work of the Holy Spirit, the first thing he does is he gives us new life. He regenerates us. And part of us becomes spiritual. Now, Titus 3.5 adds a little phrase to that. Look at verse 5 again. It speaks of the washing of regeneration. So this kind of life washes us, cleanses us. In other words, the minute you trust Christ, you are cleansed of your sin. Now, this is the initial work of the Holy Spirit. Like I said, these verses are just packed. Uh, If I were going to explain the rest of them, it would take us the rest of the time. So I have other fish to fry, and I'm not going to do that. However, I want to explain one other thing. It helps put in focus what I'm saying today. Look at verse 5 again. He said, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit regenerates us and renews us. Now, what is this? renewal of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's not the initial work. If that's the case, he would be saying he regenerates us and he renews us as if it all happened at the same time. It's not that, which puts into focus the fact that the regeneration is the initial work. Now, the reason I know renewal is not part of the initial work is because that word is only used twice in the New Testament. Here and in Romans 12, 2. And in Romans 12, 2, it's talking about something that happens throughout a Christian's life, not just initially. It says we are, tra- we are transformed, Romans 12, 2, by the renewing of our mind. So the renewing of our mind transforms us, and that's the continuous work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. All of which is to say that puts in focus that the regeneration part is the initial work he does. He does that at the beginning of the spiritual life of the believer. All right. I said there was a lot in that verse, and I was going to unpack it. The bottom line is very simple. When you trust Christ, he gives you new life, and that life is divine life. Got it? 
Got it. Let me give it to you in popular terms. You ever heard anybody say, I was born again? You ever heard that? Let me give you Paul's word for that. Regeneration. It's the same thing. When we say we're born again, a phrase Jesus used with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we're talking about the fact that we have new kind of life. And Jesus goes on to explain that that's an eternal kind of life. So, the Christian is born again with a new kind of life, a divine life that is God's life. So, the Bible is not interested in making bad people good. It's interested in making dead people alive. It's not interested in just reforming people. It's interested in transforming people. That is a radical, different kind of concept. So let me illustrate. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a pet pig who ate slop and wallowed in the mud. The problem was that pig wanted to live in the house of his master. So occasionally, after wallowing in the mud, he would make his way through the back door and make himself at home on the living room sofa. The master wanted to teach the pig not to sit in the mud and then sit on the sofa. So he tried everything, including lecture, leashes, and lashes. Nothing worked. It's tough to reform a pig. But suppose that by some supernatural power, the master could put the nature of a sheep inside his pet pig. The pig would be transformed. He would have a new kind of life, bringing a new kind of desires. Then he would have to be taught how to follow the inclinations of the new life instead of the old life. Now, pardon my reference, but there is inside of you a pig and a lamb. At new birth, you got this new nature. And what you need to do is learn to follow the inclinations of the lamb and not the pig. How's that for putting it down on the ground? A Marxist speaking at Hyde Park pointed to a man in rags and exclaimed, Communism can put a new suit of clothes on that man. A Christian standing nearby responded, Christ can put a new man in that suit. And that's the difference of Christianity versus all other forms of philosophy and religion. God wants to give people a new kind of life. You have it if you've trusted Christ. This is not a feeling. It's a fact. You have a new life in Christ. All right, I'm talking about the first things that the Holy Spirit does, the initial work 
as you trust Christ. The first is he gives you new life. He regenerates you. You're born again. The second is that he actually indwells you. This is different. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14, and look at verse 15. He says, uh, If you love me, if you love, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, this is spoken by Jesus the night before he was crucified. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's on Thursday night. He's crucified on Friday afternoon. And it says that he says, I'm going to give you another helper. Interesting. It's as if to say, I've been here helping you. I'm leaving, and I'm going to send another helper to you. And that's defined in this passage as the Holy Spirit, here called the Spirit of Truth. Now, I want to focus for a minute on the word another. That's an interesting word. Uh, we use it without thinking about it. But in Greek, there are two different words that can be translated another. One is another of the same kind. And the second is another of a different kind. So I could say to you, I have in my closet a suit made out of wool and, what, polyester or something? Is that a blend? Uh, and I have another suit, and I could mean one of the same kind. Or I could say, I have a suit in my closet, and then I have another suit. And in Greek, I could use the word another that meant another of the same kind. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you a helper, another helper. One of the same kind, which is an indirect reference to the Trinity. Both are deity. Now, the idea of helper, the literal meaning, the root meaning of the word helper, is someone called alongside to help. And it got to be used of advocate, counselor. It has a number of nuances, but the idea... This is somebody that's come along to help. The old King James translates this comforter. A much better translation is the word helper. The Holy Spirit has come here to help. Now, the passage I read in John 14 really underscores the relationship of the Holy Spirit to believers. So let me read these verses again and highlight those words. Look at verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he will send you another helper. 
He will abide with you. That's the first thing. Or 17, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, and he dwells with you. That's the second relationship. And he will be in you. So he abides, he dwells, he's going to be in you, he says. Then he says, he's going to be in you, he's going to dwell with you, he's going to abide with you forever. Wow. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and left, apparently. Uh, we know that because in Psalm 51, David, who is confessing his sin with Bathsheba, says, take not the Holy Spirit from me. So apparently, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could come and go. Not that they would cease to be God's child, it's just that the Holy Spirit was only with people temporarily. What Jesus is saying, we're changing all of that. The Holy Spirit's going to come to believers, he's going to abide with them, he's going to dwell with them, going to be with them, that's the idea. And he's going to be in them. And all of this is going to be forever, which implies clearly the idea of eternal security, that he is not going to leave you. Interesting. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But right now, I want to focus on the fact that this passage is teaching that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's the point. So, the initial work of the Holy Spirit is to give you new life and take up residence in your body. Now, I want you to look at one more passage pertaining to this. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at verse 19. Paul says... Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, Jesus was talking to the disciples and saying, the Holy Spirit's coming, he's going to be in you. And somebody might conclude that that just applies to the apostles. So I want you to see that Paul says this is true of all believers. He says to the Christians at Corinth, who were the most carnal, sinful group of believers in the New Testament, don't you know the Holy Spirit is in you. Now, he calls your body the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't talk about temples very much. We're aware of them. Uh, Jewish people say their house of worship is a temple sometimes. Sometimes they call it a synagogue. Uh, other religions have temples. We don't talk about temples. But we have one. By the way, we have a whole bunch of them sitting here this morning. 
You are a temple. So let me uh, exchange that for a word that we're much more familiar with, much more in common use. We're God's house. A temple is God's house. So when he says, you are God's temple, it means you're God's house. In the Old Testament, God instructed Moses to build a tent, and God dwelt in the tent. He was a tent dweller. Then later, David wanted to build him a house. David built himself a house, and he didn't he was so passionate about the Lord, he wanted to build the Lord a house. And the Lord said, I'm not going to let you do that. You're a man of war. I'm going to let your son do it. So Solomon built God a house, and it was not called a tent. It was not called a house. It was called a temple. It's God's residence. So you are God's residence. Now, God bought the house. He had to pay for it. Look at verse 20. For you were bought at a price. So in verse 19, he says, you're God's house. And in verse 20, he says, and God paid good, a good price for that house. Now, to appreciate the expensive price of a house, you need to live in Southern California. It's gotten ridiculous. Ridiculous. I know places where you could buy a very small house for a million dollars. Well, God paid a hefty price for his house. The price was the death of his son. Jesus died to pay for our sin. And part of that transaction was he bought us, for which we're very glad, and he decided, since it's his property, he would just move in. So the Holy Spirit lives in us because God bought the house. Now, what's the application of that? Well, look at verse 20. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If God dwells in you, then glorify him. Uh, now, what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? I say this every once in a while because I was a Christian for many years before I understood what it meant to glorify God. Matter of fact, I remember as a young Christian hearing preachers talk about glorifying God, and I thought, how do you do that? What in the world does that mean? And then one day, I stumbled upon a passage in the Gospel of John uh, that says, uh, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself. The Holy Spirit will take of mine and show it unto you. It's in John chapter 16, I think it's verse 14. And, but what he says is, the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself. I left out part of the verse when I quoted it the first time, deliberately. He will glorify me. And then he explains that glorifying me is he's going to take the things of mine and show them to you. So when you glorify Christ, you are showing off what he's like. Now that is glorifying the Lord. 
So the argument of this passage is that the Holy Spirit lives in us and we should stop sinning and glorify the Lord. As a matter of fact, in the context of this passage, the sin he's talking about is um, sexual immorality. So he says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Therefore, you should not be committing sexual immorality with it. Rather, you should be glorifying God. That's his point. The Holy Spirit is in you, so you should be not using your body for sin, but you should be using your body, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, to reflect the Lord, which means that you would be kind to one another and gracious to one another and love one another and be uh, helpful to one another, bless one another. That's the idea. God has done all those things for us, and we do those things for other people because that's who God is. God is love. And so we love others to be a reflection of the Lord. Now, you ever seen a cardboard box that said, handle with care? You ever seen that? All right. Forgive me for the poor illustration, but if I can call you a pig, I can call you a cardboard box. All right. You handle the box with care because of what's in it. You're not concerned about the box. You're concerned about the contents in the box, right? All right. Your body is the box. Handle with care because of the content of the box which is the Holy Spirit. All right, so far I've told you two things. The initial work of the Holy Spirit is to regenerate you and indwell you. In other words, he gives you new life and he moves in. There's a third thing I would like to mention, and for that you need to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This is the third thing the Holy Spirit does when he converts us. So look at Ephesians chapter 1 and look at verse 13. In him, in Christ, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now this is another passage that's just packed with deeply significant phrases. The basic point is in verse 13. That is, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. This happens at the point of faith, not after faith, but at faith, which he labors to explain in verse 13. He says, you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation. Now, as we know, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins and arose from the dead. So you hear that message. And when you do, the Spirit of God convinces you that you are a sinner. Jesus is the Messiah who died and arose from the dead. Then he says in verse 13, you trusted. So you heard the good news, the gospel of your salvation, and you trusted. You believed. He uses both words in the translation of verse 13. And at that moment, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and then he adds, of promise. And that simply means that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come, and John the Baptist promised the Holy Spirit would come. The Father promised through them the Holy Spirit would come, so he's the Holy Spirit of promise. But the point is that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means a whole bunch of things, actually. Uh, If you're going to seal somebody in the ancient world, it meant ownership, for one thing. Uh, The king had a signet ring, and it pressed it into wax and uh, sealed a letter, a document, and that proved it was his. Uh, We don't talk like that. When was the last time you sealed a letter with a signet ring? Uh, So let me come up with something a little more modern. Um, Oh, boy. I've called you a pig in a box. Can I insult you further? How about a cow? Uh, Ranchers brand cows. Now, if you branded a cow, what would that mean? You belong to that rancher, right? Right. So when the Bible says we are sealed, it means we belong to the Lord. Wow. Let me tell you what else it means. It means that you are secure. You can't lose it. You're sealed. So it means ownership and it means security. You're his forever. In the case of a cow, you're, you're the ranchers, and unless he sells you, God ain't going to sell you if you'll pardon my grammar. All right? You're stuck. You're his permanently, eternally. He gave you eternal life, not temporary life. It lasts forever. And part of the doctrine of eternal security is that you were sealed until he comes back to claim you. Matter of fact, look at verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. Did you see that? The guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, I've already pointed out, he bought us with a price, the death of his son. So we are his possession that he purchased with the purchased possession. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, let me explain. Oh, boy. You're going to have to bear with me for a minute. Many of you, most of you, have heard me explain that the Bible teaches we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. Remember that? 
I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. I'm going to be saved from the presence of sin. You got that? The same thing is used of redemption. I have been redeemed. I will be redeemed. My soul has been redeemed. And my spirit is going to be redeemed. When the Lord comes back, he's going to redeem my body, I should say. All right? So what this passage is saying is, the Holy Spirit has sealed me and guaranteed that I belong to the Lord until the Lord comes back and redeems my body. Amen. Now, is that eternal security or what? That's what that passage is saying. As a matter of fact, the word guarantee is translated guarantee, but the, the, the basic word means earnest, which is, uh, did you ever buy a house and put down down payment money? You ever done that? That's an earnest money. What does that mean? I, I'm, I'm going to give you this money as a guarantee that I'm going to pay you the rest of it as soon as I can get it from the bank. Right? So earnest money is that, well, it means here's some of it and there's more to come just like it. So the Holy Spirit is our earnest. That's the guarantee there's more to come. Not of him, but of inheritance. Wow. Now, I want to push this a little further. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I want you to look at um, verse 30. Well, go back to verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. What comes out of your mouth should build people up. That's the meaning of the word edification. Don't tear them down. Don't shoot barbs at them. Bless them. Then he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, how would you grieve the Holy Spirit? You grieve the Holy Spirit by violating verse 29. And if that isn't bad enough, he says, you grieve the Holy Spirit by, verse, by committing the sins in verse 31. Let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So put all that away. Now here's what this passage is saying. You can commit sin. You knew that before you came to church today, right? You were aware that you can commit sin. You were aware that you can be bitter and anger, angry. Wrath is an explosion of anger. You can have malice, an attitude of, I want to get even. Ever had any of those attitudes? Bad things can come out of your mouth. Corrupt things can come out of your mouth. Well, what's that going to mean? Well, some people teach, well, if you start committing sins like that, you're going to lose your salvation. Right. I mean, wow. You can't go around sinning. There are even those who go so far as to say, well, a real Christian wouldn't do that. Well, I beg your pardon. I know that to be wrong for two reasons. Number one, I read it in the passage. Number two, I'm a pastor. There's a third reason, I'm a person. 
All right? Amen. Now read this passage again. Verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What? Wow! You see, your sin grieves the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does not leave. Did you see that? That's eternal security. The Holy Spirit has sealed you until the day of redemption. That is the day the Lord comes back and redeems your body. But in the meantime, you are sealed. That's great stuff. Isn't that good stuff? Now that shouldn't encourage you to sin. It should discourage you to sin because you don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. Why would you want to do that? Besides, you're going to have to give an account of all that stuff when the Lord comes back. So, the point is that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. There is an old song we used to sing, Now I belong to Jesus, and he belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. So, here's what I'm telling you today. Real, short, sweet, and simple. The Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer. The beginning work, I'm calling it the initial work, is to give you new life. It's to literally come in and dwell inside of you and to seal you until the Lord comes back. Is that good news or what? I think that's great. Now, not done. I want to probe this for a little bit. And I want to say two things. It seems to me that this teaches us that we are eternally secure. I um, love to answer questions, theological questions. I've told you the story of how I got started with that uh, when I first became a Christian, and I've been doing it ever since. And I love doing it. And the reason is, when I'm preaching, I may not be scratching you where you itch today. But when you ask me a question, I'm scratching you where you itch. Well, let me just tell you, I revel in answering questions. Done it publicly and privately, one-on-one -on -one and one-on-many many for years and years and years. If I took all the questions that I get asked, uh, there are some that come up over and over and over and over again. And I would put on that list two that just constantly come up. One is eternal security. Can you lose your salvation? Another, by the way, I got asked yesterday, was how do you know the will of God? Uh, by the way, I've written articles on that. They're on my personal website called Insights from the Word, kokoros.com for short, uh, or they're on the Bible, the Disciples Bible Institute website, and there's a manuscript, and, 
And I think uh, in some cases there might be audio on the church website. So I, I've, I've produced plenty of material to answer all the questions pertaining to those two subjects. But I want to illustrate from the scripture. I will never forget the day I saw a pastor uh, point this out in the Bible. I'd never seen it. I was a very young Christian, and I've never forgotten it. As I recall, I was sitting in a Presbyterian church, and a Presbyterian pastor did this. I don't think I've, I, I think I've done it once, maybe. Uh, I want you to turn to John 13. John 13. This is an illustration. The teaching is in Ephesians 1, 13 and 4, 30. We're sealed. There are many other verses that demonstrate that we're eternally secure and that sin is not going to cause you to lose your salvation. But this is just a very simple illustration. I want you to look at John chapter 13, verse 36. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Peter just said, I'll follow you wherever you go and I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow until you have denied me three times. End of chapter. Peter, I have some bad news for you, buddy. You are so cocky. Well, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. You think you're not because you're so blooming arrogant and cocky. The truth is, you are going to deny me. Now, what happens when you deny the Lord? Do you lose your salvation? No! You might lose your fellowship, but you're not going to lose your salvation. I was talking to my brother yesterday, and uh, I have another friend that's... Um, uh, two of my closest friends have passed away in the last year or so. And I have another friend that's getting dementia. And I'm losing all my friends. And I call my brother and I said, I've got a new title for you. Uh, you're my brother and best friend, but I'm going to change the title. You're my brother and only friend I've got left. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, brother, that's a great illustration of eternal security. And I'm talking about that tomorrow. I... I you, you know, let's say two brothers. I'm very close with my brother, and, and we are the best of friends. But let's just take two brothers. Could two brothers fall out and not speak to each other? I know of a case like that of two guys that were close at one point. They went into business together, and because of that, they ended up not speaking to each other for years. All right? Yeah. Do they cease to be brothers? No. So you can lose your fellowship, but you can't lose your relationship. You're secure. You're sealed. Now, Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him. That's about as bad a sin as you can commit. It's not only one of the top ten, it's at the top of the ten. All right? That's bad stuff, Bubba. So what did Jesus say to Peter? Well, end of the chapter. 
It's the end of the story, right? Wrong. There were no chapter breaks when John wrote this. Jesus keeps talking and somebody put a chapter break here and destroyed what Jesus was doing. Keep reading. Chapter 14, verse 1. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. He said that to Peter, who just was just told, you're going to deny me three times. Isn't that incredible? You're going to deny me. Don't worry. I'm going to go, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to go prepare heaven and I'll come back and I'll take you to my house. that good stuff? So you're eternally secure. Now I want to say one more thing, and that is this. The idea that we have this new spiritual life, that the Spirit of God, God himself, dwells in us, and we're sealed, and nothing can change that, ought not make us go sin. It ought make us sensitive to sin. And with that, I want to close. But it's going to take me a minute, because I'm going to tell you a story. The message was prepared but yesterday morning, I got up, and I, I don't know, it's 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and I had some other studying I was going to do, but I thought, I'm going to go through Sunday sermon one more time, and I went through it, and I thought, wow, it would be really nice if I had a good corking story to tell. I love sermon illustrations. I don't know where I'd get one for this. Oh, I guess I'll think about that for a while. So I shut the computer down out of that program and got into another one. And I no sooner did that than my phone went off. Now, I'm, I get all kinds of things. I, I don't even know. I don't remember signing up for some of this stuff. But in this case, it was a secular app, and they were sending me news. And I get these things. I don't even read them. I keep up with the news. But... You don't have time to read all those news breaks I get. But the title of this one caught my attention, and I read it, and I thought, wow, right out of heaven. The illustration I need. Ooh, thank you, Lord. Now, I'm going to read you what I received. This is written by some fella named Joshua Rogers. I have no idea who he is. But some app decided they'd send this out. Apparently, the guy who wrote this was a Christian, is a Christian. So let me just read you what he wrote. In my first year of marriage, my wife and I got into a disagreement while visiting a family member's house. We went into the guest room to hash it out privately. But we had no idea how badly we were about to embarrass ourselves. While in the guest room, our tempers flared. Unfortunately, I became particularly disrespectful until suddenly my wife's face dropped and she said, 
oh my gosh, the baby monitor is right next to you. This was significant because the baby monitor speaker was in the living room and our hosts were in the living room. I was unfazed. Don't worry, I said. I turned it right off before we came in here. Without missing a beat, I continued to rehash my grievance until we got tired of arguing and my wife left the room. Then she immediately returned and said with, uh, and, and said, uh, with, with icy composure, I just went into the living room. You didn't turn the baby monitor to the off position. You turned it on to the voice activation position. We both felt like we were going to die, hoping that by some chance nobody heard our hasty, nasty argument. Back, we, uh, back then, uh, we, uh, back, we learned what we had done. We, had humili- we were humiliated. Even, there, uh, even if there hadn't been a baby monitor broadcasting our tension, uh, marriage had become humbling to my wife and to me. It has often made us face the ugly, our ugly side and still does sometimes. Perhaps you can relate. On the outside, you are a decent person who is easy to get along with. You never tell off a coworker or post an insult on someone's Facebook page. You are likable, respectable, kind. You are even admirable. But when the doors are closed at home, someone else emerges, the real you. Surely, you are a good spouse overall, but then there's that other side. Maybe you're constantly critical of your spouse, but you're hypersensitive to any negative comments. Maybe you slam the doors when you're angry or raise the volume in your voice to shut the other person up. Or perhaps you're the icy cold type whose body slams your spouse with the silent treatment. What if people got to listen in on what you two were saying to each other? Sort of like a baby monitor. You probably offer some people excuses, you tell yourself. Well, I'm really not like that. I'm just reacting to the other person. Whatever. That's just another way of admitting that your spouse brings out who you really are. In the real you, the best you, is going to emerge if the real you, the best you, is going to emerge in your marriage. It will require dealing with yourself first. That doesn't come naturally. To any one of us, surely it doesn't for me. But when I'm at my best, these are the things I'm willing to do to move me in the right direction. You ready? Here's the sermon. Dropped right out of the sky into my cell phone. Number one, apologize. Own 
my part even if it's a small part. Number two, forgive. Follow the example of Jesus who forgave when nobody had apologized yet. Oh, that's interesting. And it's true. Romans 5.8, he puts that in parenthesis. This is a secular app I'm getting this from. Romans 5.8 says, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Three, pray. Internally confess to God that I, I confess to God that I don't know uh, what to do and I need his help. Four, listen. Focus on understanding my wife's position instead of shooting her down as fast as possible. Five, touch. Eliminating the physical distance by touching. My wife's hand makes it harder for me to be emotionally distant. This isn't a magic formula for conflict resolution. I haven't found that formula yet. These are just small but monumental steps that as you take will resolve distances in marriage. They are steps to becoming the kind of spouse we would like to be if the other person were listening uh, on the other end of the baby monitor. End of quote. I read that and I thought, that's a good illustration. In our case, we don't have baby monitors. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So, we ought to be sensitive to the baby monitor. No, the Holy Spirit. Father, Thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you for sealing us with the Holy Spirit. And now, Father, I pray that you would make us aware, conscious of his presence so that we live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.